there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Headmaster, you wanted to see me? Oh, uh, do come in. I brought the reports you asked for. Yes, yes, we'll get to those in a minute. You've worked as dean to my students for years now, but I realized I don't know the answer to this. Do you like detective stories? I do. Excellent. You must hear about this one I've just read. It's about the headmaster of a private boys school, just like me, who gets shot through the window of his study. It's a delight. Sounds like a wild story. And the most incredible part? The man who commits the crime is never charged. Thrilling. I've got it right here. The public school murder. Say, Headmaster, do you think I could borrow this? This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all other ParCast originals on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Elliot Spear, the headmaster of the prestigious Mount Hermon School for Boys in Massachusetts who was shot through the window of his study. Next week, we'll follow the continued search for his killer. The Mount Hermon School for Boys was a well-loved institution, founded in 1879 by Dwight L. Moody near Northfield, Massachusetts. He was a Protestant evangelist and built the school to serve bright but underprivileged students, a mandate that was unheard of at the time. Moody may have been inspired by his own rags-to-riches success story. He grew up in rural East Northfield, Massachusetts, one of nine children in a family where money was tight. 
Moody didn't have much in the way of education, but he was outgoing and personable. Relying on these traits, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps to become a successful shoe salesman. He gave up his thriving business after a Sunday school class inspired him to devote his life to his religion. Moody became a full-time evangelist, eventually founding two separate schools for boys and girls in an attempt to provide a path similar to his own for future generations of Christian students. The schools ran on the tenets of conservative ideals, rigid religious instruction and physical labor. All students were required to do chores around the school's large campus. Per Moody's instruction, students and faculty adhered to strict rules, no card playing, no newspapers on Sunday, and no classes on Monday so that students wouldn't be tempted to read anything other than the Bible on Sunday. The only social activity for the boys was a weekly tea on Monday afternoons. This was also attended by the girls from Mount Hermon's sister school, the Northfield School for Girls. It was heavily chaperoned, and the boys had to walk several miles to and from the event, often in inclement weather. While the strict rules may make Mount Hermon sound more like a detention center, the majority of the students and faculty fiercely loved their school, and it engendered a thriving and loyal alumni community. But by the 1920s, the school was starting to feel like a time capsule that had been left behind. The years since the school's inception had brought with them great social change. People both outside the school and in it were starting to have more relaxed attitudes on everything from skirt lengths to science. Darwin's theory of evolution was fueling a new way of thinking that stood in direct conflict with the creationism that had always been taught in schools. The Presbyterian Church found itself caught between conflicting philosophies, the fundamentalism it had been founded on, and the modernism of progressives. And by the early 1930s, the Mount Hermon School for Boys found itself squarely between these two ideologies. While the school remained firmly rooted in Christianity, several members of the Board of Trustees felt that it was time for a refresh of ideals. And nothing symbolized the school's old ways of thinking more than its headmaster, Dr. Henry Cutler. He had held the office for the last 40 years, and while he had seemed progressive when he first took over the role, he was now starting to seem a bit past his expiration date. Cutler was in his late 70s when he announced his plans to retire in 1932. The Board of Trustees immediately began to push for a more progressive replacement. Cutler could not think of a better choice for the job than his friend, Elliot Speer, the 33-year-old president of the school's board of directors. Elliot came from a family that was well-regarded by the religious elites and was himself an ordained reverend. He had joined the board in 1926 after finishing his own schooling at Princeton and the Theological College of the Free Church of Scotland. Despite his family's pedigree, Elliot Spear was significantly more progressive than many of his peers, including Henry Cutler. Though the two men differed in ideology, they had developed a great mutual respect for one another. Cutler nominated Spear to replace him as headmaster, and the board agreed. Elliot Spear was appointed headmaster on October 30, 1932. 
Alumni gathered with the school's trustees and students to see Elliott accept the position from Wilfred Fry, who would replace him as president of the board. And now, I hand over the keys to the headmaster's cottage, a symbol of the position, and hopefully too, of the hearts of the school's faculty and students. Thank you, Mr. President, for this key. If it be, as you say, the key to the headmaster's cottage and also the key to all these hearts, may it not also be possibly a key to heaven? While he had received a standing ovation, not everyone at the school was pleased by Elliot's appointment. Many of the more conservative alumni feared that putting a modernist in charge represented the beginning of the end for Mount Hermon. One man had more personal reasons to be upset by the board's decision. Tom Elder, the school's dean of students, had long expected that he would be promoted to headmaster when Henry Cutler retired. Unfortunately, Elder had a persistent heart problem. That, combined with his moody temperament, made many on the board feel he was not the right man for the job. Still, most people were pleased with Elliot's appointment, and he didn't let them down. After the ceremony, Elliot moved into the headmaster's cottage on campus with his wife Holly and her parents. He set to reforming the school immediately. Those who had been pushing for a more progressive Mount Hermon were thrilled when they saw the changes he was making around the school. For starters, Elliot did away with many of the rigid rules that had been in place since the school's inception in 1879. An avid card player who enjoyed a good smoke, he quickly decreed that both card playing and cigarettes would be allowed on school grounds. He also upgraded the weekly teas with the girls' school to weekly dances, and even sprang for dance lessons and buses to and from the events. Particularly popular amongst the students was Elliot's choice to make some of the school's religious activities voluntary rather than mandatory. Older faculty and alumni worried that Elliot was leading the school away from its core values and into troubled waters. But the progressive faculty and majority of the students loved him. And not just for his liberal reforms. Elliot was seen as kind and fair. Even when he was delivering news the boys didn't want to hear. One student recalls a time when Elliot had to enforce attendance at a weekly prayer meeting. Boys, listen up. I have noticed that since I made Wednesday evening's prayer session voluntary, only 12 of you have shown up. Out of over 500 students, you have forced my hand. I have no choice but to make it mandatory again. But... Sir, the only reason we've been missing the prayer meeting on Wednesdays is because it's a time many of us use to write letters to our mothers. <laughs> I see. Well, in that case, I would never stand in the way of a boy's correspondence with his mother. Any boy using Wednesday evenings to write to their mothers may miss Wednesday prayer meeting. But any boy who misses the prayer service must come and see me and together we will find another time in your schedule in which you may write your mother. Since there are no classes on Sunday or Monday, I think we should be able to find a suitable time. Students recalled that as Elliot was being booed, he simply started to laugh. <laughs> and this transformed the students' boos into raucous cheers. 
The students couldn't help but respect and even love Elliot Spear. And even the faculty and alumni who disagreed with his principles couldn't help but like Elliot for the person that he was. He was remembered by most as a man with no enemies. Which makes the events of Friday, September 14, 1934, even more perplexing. It was an evening like any other since Elliot had taken the headmaster's office two years earlier. The night was cold, dark, and moonless. The campus was quiet, as the majority of the school students would not be arriving until the following Monday, with classes starting later in the week. After dinner with his family, Elliot retired to his study for the evening. He usually used this time to read and catch up on his headmaster's duties. The fall semester would be starting in three days, so on this particular evening, Elliot was probably prepping for the forthcoming semester, or perhaps enjoying the calm before the storm of classes and students. Around 8 p.m., Elliot stood from his desk. He may have gotten up to reach for a book, or he might have been responding to a sudden noise from outside. As he stood, he heard a loud bang, and the window shattered. Upstairs in the cottage, Elliot's wife, Holly, was preparing her ailing mother for bed when she heard the noise, followed by several more loud bangs. What was that? It sounds like a light bulb exploded downstairs. I'll go and check. We've had the darndest time with those things. (gasps) Elliot! Holly, something shocking has happened. Elliot, my God, you have blood pouring from your sleeve. I know. Get me a tourniquet, dear. Elliot, what has happened? And call the doctor. Please. Oh, my love, what has happened to you? Elliot Spear had been shot at nine times through the window of his study. Holly Spear struggled to process the nightmare unfolding before her eyes. She had never once considered that someone would want to harm Elliot. It seemed inconceivable that an act of such violence could occur on the quiet campus of the boys' preparatory school. And yet here she was, watching her husband bleed out on the floor of his study. The next morning, the Mount Hermon faculty and staff would awaken to the unbelievable news. At just 35 years old, their headmaster, Elliot Spear, was dead. Coming up, the search for Elliot Spears' killer begins. And now, back to the story. Around 8 p.m. on Friday, September 14, 1934, Headmaster Elliot Spear was shot in his cottage at the Mount Hermon School for Boys Campus. Nine bullets shattered the window of his study. Eight pierced Elliot's shoulder and chest, while one found its way directly through his heart. Elliot's family heard the noise and rushed to the study to find him lying in a pool of blood. His father-in-law hurried off to call a doctor while his wife Holly stayed by his side. The first person to arrive was David Birdsall, a close family friend of the Spears who happened to live on campus. Though Birdsall and the doctor hurried over as fast as they could, when they arrived, it was already too late. There was nothing that could be done And at 8.55 p.m., Elliot was pronounced dead. Birdsall called the police, who arrived promptly and set to work investigating. Holly, her parents, and the Birdsalls watched in stunned horror as the cottage turned into a crime scene. 
Just as the police were getting started, the Spears received a phone call. It was Tom Elder, the school's dean of students. He asked to speak to Elliot. Elliot's father-in-law knew that Dean Elder had a bad heart, and he didn't want to surprise him. So he simply told the dean that Elliot couldn't come to the phone. What do you mean he can't come to the phone? I'm... I'm sorry, Tom. He's indisposed. Well, this is official school business, and I need to speak with him immediately. He'll understand. Put him on. I'll wait. Are you doing it? I said I'll wait. (sighs) I'm so sorry to have to tell you. He's... He's dead. Oh. God. Oh, Lord have mercy. I had no idea. I'm sorry to have been so rough with you. But how could I have known? Dean Elder raced over to Elliot's cottage immediately. Then he began calling the board of trustees to let them know that there had been a tragedy. By this time, it was late into the night on Friday, September 14, 1934. Led by District Attorney Joseph Bartlett, police were wrapping up their preliminary investigation. So far, they had gleaned a few slim pieces of information. The Spears' maid, Florence George, told them that she had heard the gunshots, followed by the hurried footsteps of someone running away from the house. Additionally, two workers from the school told Bartlett that they had seen a car driving quickly away from the Spears' cottage. The workers were Daniel Bodley, who ran the school's laundry, and William Deerig, who oversaw its woodworking shop. Along with their wives, they had been talking in front of the Mount Hermon post office when they heard the gunshots. At first, they didn't think anything of the sounds. It was not uncommon to hear gunshots in rural areas in 1934, so they figured it was either someone shooting at an animal or a car backfiring. They noted that they had seen the same car pass by them in the opposite direction, towards the cottage, just moments before the shots. Unfortunately, they couldn't give an exact description of the car, but they were able to say that it was a boxy older model sedan, dark in color, possibly a Franklin. It was too dark to properly gather evidence from the grounds, but that itself led police to an important conclusion. They figured that, given how dark it was on the night of September 14th, The murder must have been committed by someone who knew their way around the campus. And specifically the area around the headmaster's cottage. If anyone had turned on a light or lit a match, the headmaster would likely have seen it from his window. Since it was too dark to do a full sweep of the grounds, Bartlett and the police focused on searching the interior of the headmaster's cottage. Interestingly, in Elliot's study, they found a 22 caliber target pistol nestled in the drawer of his desk. The police wondered if its presence in such an accessible location was an indication that Elliot had feared for his safety. The next clue Bartlett zeroed in on had to do with the cottage's canine residence. Hey, boy. Sit. Great pair of dogs you've got here, Holly. Say, are they good guard dogs? Well, that's tough to say. Angus here is just a puppy. And Wolford is often locked away in his cage. Did they raise any sort of fuss last night? No, not that I can recall. Why do you ask? Well, it seems like they would have barked if they heard someone skulking around the grounds. Well, now that you mention it, yes, I suppose they would. So, 
It would follow that the man who killed your husband must have been familiar to your dogs. Heavens! Just like Silver Blaze! I'm sorry, ma'am. I don't follow. Are you familiar with Sherlock Holmes? There's quite a well-known case of his in which he comes to the same conclusion due to the curious incident of a dog in the nighttime. What was the curious incident? Well, that was just it. That the dog didn't do anything. So they figured out that the killer was someone the murdered man knew. That's it, precisely, Mrs. Spear. Oh dear, oh, that is upsetting. But the Sherlock Holmes similarity wasn't the only literary parallel to Elliot's murder. While going through Elliot's things, police made a shocking discovery. Hey, O'Malley, I don't pay you to sit around and read, do I? No, sir. But there's something in this book that I think might pertain to the case. Uh-huh. And there's something in my gin and tonic down at the bar that might pertain to the case, too. Sir, I'm serious. The headmaster has a detective novel here called The Public School Murder. It's exactly what happened to Elliot. It's giving me the creeps. Go on. Well, it's about the headmaster of this private boys' school. That's what public school means in England. And one night, he's alone in his study, and he's shot. Through the window. Just like what happened here in Mount Hermon. Holy smokes. It's almost like someone used the book as a how-to guide. Boys, pack that book up. It's evidence. The story in the public school murder was so eerily similar to Elliot Spears' murder that to police, it seemed like it couldn't possibly be simply a coincidence. They wanted to know immediately if Elliot had lent the book to anyone at the school. Mrs. Spear, I'm so sorry to have to ask you these questions. I know you're in agony right now, but did your husband ever lend out his books to anyone that you know of? His books? Well, yes, all the time. Elliot was the most generous man I've ever known. If he loved a story, he wanted everyone around him to enjoy it. So he may have lent his books to people at the school? Oh, everyone at the school. He cared for those people so deeply. He certainly lent his books. He would have lent them the last cent to his name if he... <laughs> Someone at the school easily could have read the public school murder. One more question, Mrs. Spear. And again, it pains me to ask. Uh, can you think of a reason why someone at the school might want to kill your husband? Well, no. Everyone loved him. <clears throat> oh, Dean Elder, I didn't realize that you were still here. Sir, if I may. I would be remiss not to point out that not everyone was pleased with the changes that Elliot was making around the school. Some people thought he was taking Mount Hermon to hell in a handbasket. I see. Just sharing what other people have been saying. As the night of Friday, September 14th became the early morning of Saturday the 15th, the police concluded that the murderer was most likely someone involved with the school, who knew their way around the campus and had possibly borrowed Elliot's book. But so far, they had very few clues that could lead them to a specific person who fit that profile, leaving them with an enormous pool of possible suspects to wade through. 
The police's best guess was that Elliot had been killed either by a religious fundamentalist who did not like the changes Elliot had made at Mount Hermon, or a maniac of some sort who had passed through the school in some capacity. To narrow the search beyond these broad terms, police would need to find the murder weapon. As soon as it was light enough to see on Saturday morning, police began the search for the gun in earnest. Helped by students and other volunteers from the school, they set out, covering the ground around the headmaster's cottage. In the afternoon, after several hours of searching, police got their first bit of physical evidence from the school grounds, two pieces of shotgun wadding and a small piece of cardboard from a shell. They were found in the yard around Elliot's cottage. These pieces were given to Charles Van Amberg, a firearms expert who determined that the murder weapon must have been a 12-gauge shotgun. From the holes in the screen of the study window, Van Amberg guessed that the shotgun had been fitted with a choke muzzle, which made the gun able to focus in on a much narrower range of targets. Van Amberg also guessed that the small maple tree about 15 feet from Elliot's study may have provided cover for the killer, as well as a firm bow to steady the gun on. Now that police knew what type of gun was used, they needed to figure out whose 12-gauge weapon had done the killing. On September 16, 1934, Bartlett made an announcement to the locals. Listen up, people. We're asking everyone with a 12-gauge gun to bring it in for examination. It's imperative to help us find the killer. Are you going to bring your gun in, Marty? I don't know. I don't like the police poking their noses into my business. If you have nothing to hide, just give it over. I suppose. Many people dutifully turned in their firearms, but all of the guns turned in were either the wrong model or hadn't been fired recently. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it seemed that the killer was not just going to hand the murder weapon over. The police realized if they really wanted to find the gun, they were going to have to get a little bit more creative. I'll tell you, I've been thinking about this cup of coffee all afternoon. We've just about covered the whole town looking for that darn gun. I know. It's absolutely maddening. Maybe the, the, the gun exploded. Just poof, into thin air. That's crazy. Although... You look like you're thinking about something. What you said is crazy, but it's not crazier than that book we found that's written about the murder. Do you have it with you? Pull it out. See what it says that murderer did with the gun. Are you serious? We're on break. Yes, I'm serious. It's frighteningly similar to the case. Yes, sir. It says the killer threw it in a lake. Breaks over. Get eyes on Shadow Lake. On Mount Hermon grounds, there was a lake. And it just so happened to be conveniently located between the headmaster's cottage and the main road, a path the killer would have taken in his escape. The lake was called Shadow Lake, and authorities made a plan to drain it in the coming days if the gun did not turn up first. But that was easier said than done. On September 17, 1934, nearly 500 students began pouring in to start their fall semester. They were shocked to hear that their beloved lake might be drained and worried that might mean the cancellation of the school's annual tug of war across it. Along with the influx of students came backup detective power. 
Brigadier General Daniel Needham, head of Massachusetts State Police, and two additional detectives, including the highly respected detective John Stokes, joined D.A. Bartlett. The backup allowed the police to divide the students into groups of 10. Each group joined in the search for the gun. The lake was drained, but to no avail. They even hired a diver to search a nearby river. But still, nothing turned up. Then, on Wednesday, September 19th, police received a frantic telephone call from a superintendent at a nearby school. Hello, police. I'm having an emergency. What seems to be the problem, sir? I've been shot while driving my car on Mohawk Trail Highway. Please, send someone immediately. I'm in a dire state. The highway the superintendent was driving on was around 20 miles away from Mount Hermon, and police were alarmed. All signs were pointing towards a dangerous criminal who was specifically targeting school faculty. Coming up, we'll look at what happened after the alleged shooting and the police's continued efforts to find the criminal on the loose. Now, back to the story. On September 14, 1934, Elliot Spear was shot in his cottage on the Mount Hermon Boys School campus, a murder eerily similar to the plot of a detective novel found in his own study. Shortly after, police received a call that a superintendent had been shot at while driving less than 20 miles from the school. They feared a murderer was hunting down local school employees. But when they investigated the incident, it quickly fell apart. The superintendent had said he'd heard a noise that he thought could have been a shot, which, again, wasn't unusual at the time in a rural area, but could also have just as easily been a car backfiring. The superintendent later saw some dents in his car and assumed that they were the result of bullets. But police concluded that his car had been hit by gravel. This call was yet another dead end for the police but it showed the effect Elliot Spears' murder had had on the community. On September 20th, 1934, the New York Times reported, The fear is general, almost approaching a belief that somewhere in the hill communities of northern Massachusetts, a fanatic or a murderer with a shotgun is at large and that it is possible he may have other figures marked for the slaughter. The police were under pressure to produce a suspect, or at the very least, a murder weapon. Without physical evidence, they were still focused on the theory that the killer was either a maniac or a religious fanatic, with an intimate knowledge of the school. They needed to find someone who fit that description, and this was one area where Elliot's detective novel couldn't help them. Instead, they turned to Mount Hermon's school psychologist. They were hoping he could lead them to someone who fit the psychological profile of a killer. To aid in this process, they brought in former student Edwin Red Thompson to share inside information about the students and recent alumni. Red warned the police they likely wouldn't find much. Everyone loved Headmaster Spear. Red and the psychologist flagged recently expelled students who might have been angry about their expulsion. One name they gave proved to be quite fruitful. A former student who had a list of violent acts he planned to inflict on his enemies. And one enemy on that list was Elliot Spear. When the police were ecstatic, they had finally found someone who didn't like the former headmaster. But their excitement was short-lived. 
the former student had an airtight alibi. He had been in Virginia the night of Elliot's death. The rest of the names the psychologist gave did not yield much, just as Red had guessed. Meanwhile, at the Mount Hermon School for Boys, the Board of Trustees desperately tried to fill the large shoes left by Elliot Spear. As most of you know, the purpose of today's meeting is to come to an agreement on a suitable replacement for Headmaster Spear. May he rest in peace. Sir, I feel obligated to share that Dean Elder has made it quite clear that he would like to be Headmaster. He's asked me about the appointment several times. Me too. I dare say me as well. In fact, Dean Elder called me shortly after the murder and said that he assumed he would be taking over the headmaster duties. He seemed to think he was enacting Elliot's wishes. Aye, given his heart condition, I fear that he simply would not be up to the task. Not to mention his temperament. What if he took one of his moods out on the boys? The board was in agreement that Dean Elder would not be named headmaster of Mount Hermon. They offered the job instead to David Porter, a teacher who was the head of the Bible department. But Porter declined, saying that he would rather have the position of headmaster be filled by a committee. The board agreed, and with Porter's help, set to put together a committee. To smooth things over, they offered Dean Elder a spot. He would get his wish, just not exactly as he had hoped. When Dean Thomas Elder heard that he would not be made the headmaster, he pulled Wilfred Fry aside for a chat. Mr. Fry, do you have a moment? Sure, Tom. How can I help you? Well, it's just, this has been such a terrible tragedy. I'm sure no one is more shocked or surprised than I am. But it is making me recall an exchange that I had with Elliot, may he rest in peace, where he told me he would like me to carry on, should there be any interruption to his service. Not a committee. What? See, we had a discussion a while back where we discussed how we felt about each other and what we might want to have happen should Elliot ever be away from campus, for any reason. And he strongly felt that I should take over. Is that so? Well, unfortunately, we don't have any physical proof that... I have letters, sir. We decided to take measures to record the results of our conversation in writing, just in case. In case of what, Dean? Well, one never knows. Dean Elder produced the written documentation of the conversation for Fry to read. It was in the form of two letters. One was from Elder to Spear and claimed to be written at Elliot Spear's request. Dated February 18, 1934, it outlined a basic sense of goodwill. Though they differed in some of their ideas as to how the school should run, Spear and Elder were essentially on the same page and liked each other quite a bit. The second letter was from Elliot to Dean Elder, reading, Dear Tom Elder, Dr. Cutler once said to me, I would rather lose any three heads of department than Tom. After working with you, I can make that same statement. You know more about the history, work, and needs of the school than any other man connected with the work. I am going to leave more and more of the work to you. I simply must be away from the school more as time passes. I have explicit confidence in you personally and in your ability. There is not a single phase of the work that you cannot handle as well as I. 
It went on to promise Tom Elder a large raise and unprecedented perks for his role as a school dean. The letter was not signed, but the description of Elder could only be described as glowing. It was so glowing, in fact, that it struck Fry as odd, and he asked if he could keep the letters. For one, the raise promised to Elder in the letter would be more than the dean at the school had ever been paid. In fact, it was as much as the headmaster made. Fry investigated whether the raise had ever gone into effect, as stated in the letter, and the school's accountant confirmed that it had not. Fry was also extremely doubtful that Elliot would have had such warm praise for Elder. By all other accounts, Elliot was not particularly fond of the dean. Additionally, as far as Fry knew, Elliot had no plans to be away from the school. Fry began to strongly suspect that Elder's letters were fake. And if he was taking advantage of Spears' death to forge correspondence, what else may he have done? He wondered if Dean Elder had murdered Elliot Spear in order to steal his job. Unsure of what to do next, Fry contacted an old acquaintance by the name of William Houghton. Houghton was an agent for the United States Secret Service and had been involved in a number of high-profile political situations. Houghton urged Fry to turn the letters over to the police, which he did on September 27, 1934. And this led to the police questioning Dean Tom Elder. Dean Elder, can you tell us why neither of these letters are signed? Yes, of course. Well, you see, they're not the originals. Uh-huh. And where were the copies made? I... I couldn't say. I travel a lot. I don't know if you know this, but I am involved with Holstein breeding, and that takes me out of town quite a bit. I can't remember where the copies were made. But you have your own assistant at the school, don't you? When you aren't breeding cows. Yes. That sounds like quite a convenience. It is, sir. Well, then why didn't you indulge in the convenience of your own private assistant and have these copies made in your office? I'm afraid I couldn't tell you. All right, then. Just one last question. If the entire point of these letters was to document in writing a conversation that was had, aren't they completely worthless if the signed originals are destroyed? I... well... I didn't want to have to share this, but I destroyed the originals at Elliot's request. He had made some disparaging remarks about Henry Cutler and later regretted them. He asked that I have the letters reprinted, with those paragraphs taken out. According to what he'd heard about Elliot from those close to him, the detective found it extremely unlikely that Elliot had put anything unkind about Henry Cutler in writing to Dean Elder. For one, he wasn't one to speak poorly of his friends. And two, he and Elder were not close enough that he would have confided in him in that way. But one of the most bizarre details was that both letters were written on the headmaster's stationery. When asked about it, Elder said that this was because he often carried around both his own stationery and the headmaster's. While this was technically an answer to the question, he did not explain why he would need to carry both sets of stationery. But perhaps the most damning effect of the letters for Dean Elder was the fact that they served no purpose to him while Elliot was alive. They only became useful in the event that Elliot was somehow eliminated. 
and their existence demonstrated an almost psychic level of foresight. With the letters casting Elder in a new light, the call that he had made about an hour after the murder on the night of September 14th suddenly had new significance. Police wondered if Dean Elder had shot the headmaster through the window and then called the house to see if his bullets had met their target. The circumstantial evidence was beginning to stack up against Tom Elder. But to bring him to trial, the police would need to find physical evidence to tie the dean to the crime. But perhaps all they needed to do was to consult the detective novel in Elliot Spears' library. Join us next week as the investigation closes in on Tom Elder and shocking new information about the dean's relationship with the former headmaster comes to light. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with our second episode on the murder of Elliot Spear. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders into the search bar. And for more information on Elliot Spears' murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder at Mount Hermon by Craig Wally, particularly helpful. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Lena Kuyumjan, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Sky King, Harris Markson, Heston Mosier, and Dan Velasquez. 